In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So imagine it's warm. That's the first thing. Remember those days? Imagine it's warm. Imagine you've got um, a nice drink in your hand and you've got your favourite book, but it's new to you, but it's become a favourite. Your favourite book is on your lap. You've read it a couple of times because it's uh, so profound. The characters are just become something that's drawn to your heart. There's an emotional depth to this narrative and there's a profound truth and a great storyline from the beginning to the end but here's the problem with the sun on your back remember those days with the, the book that you've you've opened and you've kind of delved into and immersed yourself into its story and you love its characters it doesn't quite make sense there's something missing you, you've given it the first sweep and there's something important and perhaps central in the uh, the narrative in the big arc the big sweep of the story that doesn't quite make sense. You read it again and again, there are loose ends, there are parts that, that don't quite match together, and so you're scratching your head and you're tempted to put it down and never pick it up again. But then your friend comes along as you read your story, and they say you're missing something. Here's a chapter that goes right in the very center of the story. I want you to read the whole story again and now see if it makes sense. And it does. In a way like never before, you, you begin again knowing that you've now got the full story and every character, there's now a three-dimensional 
purpose and a nature to them. The, the grand arc of the story suddenly keys into the central character and central chapter and it makes sense. There's nothing missing anymore. You've now got the central character and the central chapter of the whole book. Now I wonder what I could be talking about as I give you that picture in your mind. I think that's a helpful picture to understand what's happening in John chapter 1 verse 1 through to verse 18. It's as if in these sentences you're introduced to the central person and the central event of the whole great story that is the Bible. But the Bible doesn't just tell the whole story of history from beginning to its appointed end. It tells you your story as well. So if you're here this morning joining us online, you're most welcome. There is something lacking in all of our stories. And there's something that doesn't make sense to the, to the jigsaw puzzle that is the human story, the human heart and the whole of human history. There's a depth that's lacking, that there's a piece that's missing. And when you receive this central chapter, that's central and central person, your story can resound with joy. A joy that lasts beyond the 25th at lunchtime. You read it and there's new depth. You read it and you understand a profundity and a beauty. And you can say, this is wonderful because I've met the keystone, the key person, the cornerstone of all of human history. And what is it? Well, verse 14 of John chapter 1 through to verse 18 introduces us to the keystone, the cornerstone, the central part, the central chapter, the person that all of human history revolves around. And here it is, verse 14 to 18. It's the doctrine. It's what the Bible teaches. That's what the word doctrine means of the incarnation. The incarnation, verse 14 The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Peter said, and rightly so, this is is a part of arguably the greatest, the greatest portion of all of human literature that has ever been written by any poet or author. But it's remote. It's abstract. What's this got to do with me? It's so highfalutin and, and distant. No, it's not. The doctrine of the incarnation is our, is my, is your, is the world's only hope. It's so practical that the most high became the most low. The God who made absolutely everything came into time and space. The king of all became the servant of all. The God who is rich beyond all splendor came and dwelled amongst us. He dwelt amongst us. He is with us. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. There are two parts to this. Firstly, verse 14, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus. John revealed to us the person of Jesus Christ is the word of God. The word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. God really became man. That's the astounding claim that is so central to the Christian faith. Without it, Christianity will fall. But he didn't just do it to show his might and power. It wasn't just a flex, a divine muscle flex. What's the purpose of it? 
verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. In Jesus, this audacious claim is that the word became flesh, dwelt among us for the purpose that we might know and see and enjoy and experience the very glory of God. Now that's quite a claim. So we better think about that. Firstly, the word became flesh. The Bible claims that Jesus Christ, the word of God, really came to earth. Now let us think about plays, poetry, myths, and some legends. Here are three on the screen. And there is one storyline that you meet in the epic of Sherwood Forest. In the myth of King Arthur, I don't think he's a true person, but people in Cornwall do because they make a lot of money from it. And Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's great epic that just came back to life about 10, 15 years ago. I'm losing track of time as the films came out. But each story has the same main thread, doesn't it? There is a king and the king leaves. The king is driven out by his people and darkness descends and uh, the leaves start to rustle with the hope of a return. But the king has made a promise, although he's driven out of his land by a people that don't want to live under his loving rule. It looks like he'll never return, but there is a promise, an echo, a longing, a desire, a piece of music that signifies hope that the king will return. And when he returns, he will rid the land of its evil spell. When he returns, creation will be rid of all decay and evil. When he returns... There will be order and joy. Winter will be dispelled and it will be forever spring or summer. Now, why is that the driving force in loads of science fiction films and stories and plays? Why is it the heartbeat behind these great three uh, narratives that you can see on the screen? The Bible has a reason why these great stories, and there are loads more I can mention as well, have this central driving, uh, overarching storyline. Because the Bible describes that true storyline. There was once a high king, the great king, and he ruled perfectly over all of creation. But his people said, we don't want to live under your loving rule. And uh, he drove them out from his loving presence. And he will never return Or will he? In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, there's a lovely hope-saturated promise that although all of creation doesn't want to live under God's loving rule, he will return and he will remove darkness and he will bring light. He will remove sadness and guilt and decay and he will bring hope and satisfaction to to be found only in himself. I will be back. Where did Boris Johnson get the idea? Might have been from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's hope it's from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That the great king said, I will return. And I will be back. And I will come back for you. It's the central heartbeat of this great overarching story of the Bible. And that's trickled down that great true truth. Meta-narrative is the fancy word. It's, it's trickled down through plays and films and great stories. It's influenced so much of our culture. That's the promise. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And then in comes John. In John chapter 1 that's saturated with Genesis chapter 1. And the creation story which is a true story. And in John 1.14 he makes the pronouncement, the announcement the word has become flesh 
John chapter 1 verse 5. In all the darkness and hopelessness there is now light and it's a person who's come on a rescue mission. It's about the return of the king. Where did Tolkien get that idea from? I think it was from here. And he's come to roll back the darkness and to bring light and to bring life. Chapter 1 verse 4. And when any and every human heart sees this, Creation, Psalm 96, the trees are clapping their hands. But when a human heart sees this, it's as if you're waking up from amnesia. You've been put under a spell, but then you've woken up. It's as if you, you get new lenses on because you've been to uh, the opticians. I always say spec savers, and they don't give me any royalties. So I'll just say any optician. You go and you get new lenses, and then you see the world in a fresh light and with fresh joy. Because the myth has become a fact. The king has returned and every human heart that sees that sees reality in a new way. The most high has become the most low for you and for me and for all of human history. And that's the claim of John from John chapter 1 verse 14. So what? So what? What's the purpose? This is where we'll spend our time this morning. Point number two. We've already touched on it. Here's the purpose, verse 14. And we have seen, older version, we have beheld his glory. What's the point of, of the word becoming flesh? Well, it's a rescue mission. In one word, the whole of the Bible, rescue. It's a rescue mission from God's initiative. But what's the purpose? That we might become children of God. We saw that last week, John chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13. And then verse 14 that follows, the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might see his glory. We might see and know and enjoy the glory of God. And none of us is dumbfounded by that statement because we've made God into a figure like Father Christmas. You remember that great song, Father Christmas by the uh, open fire, you know, ice is melting. We've sentimentalized God and he, into this sort of character. God is someone who makes a list. He checks it twice. So we sing along. He's going to check who's naughty and nice because... God is coming to town. We, we can think of God in that way. God is Father Christmas, but just we say it a bit more respectfully or a little less. We, we kind of imagine God as Jack Frost nipping at your nose. We, we, we turn up the God volume at Christmas time and then we turn it down by the time it's January the 1st. That's not the way the Bible describes God himself. This would is a dumbfounding statement, verse 14. We have seen the glory of God. Who is the Lord that the Bible describes? Who is the God that the Bible speaks and reveals so clearly? Any Jewish person reading these verses would be catching their breath at this point. How is that possible that we would behold the glory of God? The glory of God that we know from the Old Testament. Jack Frost making a list, a cosy figure. We know nothing of that. The God of the Bible is the ultimate reality of all the universe. He's the most potent and dangerous reality at the center of the cosmos. How can we see the glory of God and live? That's impossible. In Exodus 19 and 20, God descends, the God of glory descends on Mount Sinai. And he says these words, 
summarizing. He turns a mountain range into an inferno that no one can come and touch. No one can come and hear his voice without being deafened by the thunderous sound of his omnipotence. And God is concerned for his people. So he says, stand back. Don't come near. If you touch the mountain, my glory might break through and destroy you because I'm holy other in Exodus 33. Moses longs to see the glory of God. And God says to him, I know you want to see my glory, but I cannot let you see my glory. No one can endure the purity of my glory and live. You cannot see my face, but I will reveal my glory. And And he reveals his name, the glory of his name and purpose. How dare we think we can just cuddle up to God? How dare we think he's a cozy figure like a a godly grandfather? Moses, if you see my glory, it will destroy you. And I don't want to do that. We we, we read that part of the Bible and and it just pierces our understanding of who God is. He's not a wealthy person who lives in a penthouse just to get himself away from the riffraff who live down below. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not how he sees us and that's not his character or his heart towards us. His purity, his his power, his nature, his majestic might and glory that spoke the world into being and sustains it is so great that were we to come in our own strength and resources towards him, it would consume us. He's not cranky. He's not hard-hearted, but because of who he is and who we are, he cannot allow us to come close to him on our own resources. Now, this is so hard to get our hand, uh, a handle on and our head around. So think about the solar system with me. Now, I know there are a few people in the room who know a lot about the solar system, so I always speak very carefully about this. Forgive me. When you, I'm told, when you get, that, that covers everything, right? <laughs> Um, in my understanding, that's another way to do it. Um, I didn't mean to do it. That's another way to cover yourself, but that's for the politicians. Um, imagine a solar system. A solar system, I am told, orbits around a central point. There is a source. There's a center of gravity. In our case, it's the solar system that orbits around the sun. Now, just imagine that each of the planets that you can see on the screen had their own orbiting center. It would be chaotic. They would clash into each other. They would collide into each other. They would destroy each other. And that's why if they they each had their own gravitational force and pull, they would be competing and then whack into each other and there'd just be an end of our cosmos. That's not how God has made the cosmos. The cosmos has a center. It has a central point and around that point, all the planets are ordered as they do an elliptical uh, orbit around the center. And so they don't destroy each other and they don't destroy us. Now look at God for a moment with that in your mind. God is the center of all things. Everything exists because of him. Nothing exists without him. He is the solar. He is the source. He is the origin of all things. His actions, his attitudes, everything turns on his glory and turns around his goodness. The only reason he does anything is because it's right because it's true, because it's good, and because it's holy. He's the center. Everything orbits around him. 
But what about you? And what about me? What do we center around? What do our actions and our motives and our desires and our priorities turn around? What really controls what we do? Is it what is true? Is it what we believe? It is what it is, 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 is what is righteous or what is valuable or what is good for the other? If I'm honest, that I always try and be, what's at the center of my heart and my actions is what is comfortable for me. What's of least resistance? What will bring me most happiness? And the trouble is if you operate sometimes like that too, we're on a collision course, one to the other. Because you might want what I have or I might want what you have. And we're just like planets, not orbiting around a common goal. We all have our own goals. And that's the bottom line of the problem of our, the human heart. Does this fulfill me? Does this please me? Will this bring me joy? Will it bring me comfort? Will it bring me honour? We go from being remote, the Bible's got nothing to say to me, to actually the Bible's got everything to challenge me about. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury centuries ago, said this very famous phrase. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Why did you do that? Because I wanted to. Is very often the honest answer. And then having made that heart choice, the will fulfills what the mind has justified. When you have God and man together, the holy otherness of God, the selfishness of men and women, you're on a collision course. And so there's a tremendous tension behind John's words. Verse 14, because now in Jesus Christ, we behold the very glory of God. How is that possible without us being consumed? How could the raw presence of God that descended on a mountain range and turned it almost into a fireball that the Israelites could see, the, the voice of Almighty God that was like the thunderous clouds, how could that not consume men and women like you and me? Because of the doctrine of the incarnation, verse 14 of John chapter 1. Jesus Christ came from God as fully God and yet as fully man to solve this great problem of God dwelling with humanity. The wages of our sin, the Bible says, deserves death. So how could God come and deal with the people that he loved and promised that he would return in rescue for? For Jesus to pay for our sins, he had to become a real man. He's not a demigod. He's not a fake god. He's, he's not Tom Cruise-esque of kind of peeling off his face mask and really it's not God underneath. No, Jesus Christ is fully God. And yet, beyond our imagination and comprehension, he's also fully man. He was really God to deal with our sin and understand our weakness and our limitation. He wasn't an angel. But on the other hand, he had to be fully God. It's this, it's this great dilemma. Jesus was fully man and yet he's fully God. And because he's fully God as well as fully man, the price and value of his blood is just beyond our calculation. In Acts chapter 20, it says that the blood of Jesus Christ is so great that it can pay for all our sins and the church of God is the blood-bought people of God. 
That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He purchased his people with his own blood. And we remember that around the table shortly. It's a blood that's so valuable, it can cover every sin. It's a blood that's so valuable, it can pay for all your guilt. It's a blood that's so valuable, it can deal with the purity, the highest standard you can ever imagine of the standard of God so that the love of God can be experienced and enjoyed. The the presence of God is no longer a fatal and a hostile reality, but it can be the embrace of a father who has made us, John chapter 1, verse 12, his children by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when you see this, when you grasp it, when you begin to understand it, it's the most exciting thing the world does not have to offer. But God offers it. It's satisfying. It's exciting. It's joy uh, giving. So on the final day of history, when we behold and see the glory of God, it will not consume us. It's something that's no longer fatal for those who are in Jesus Christ, but it will fill us and satisfy our hearts with joy unspeakable and with a glory that we can just taste partly now. It can transform you utterly and completely. Now, hang on, you said this was practical. I've heard not a lot practical yet, but let's go practical as we close. Here's a few things to think about. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, can I speak to you personally? If Jesus is the king of the universe, if, if he's the king of the cosmos, then, then first point of application is some of you need to meet him. Have you met this king, whether you're online or in the room? Have you met this king, the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe? This chapter has told us so far that the very purpose of Christianity is for God to reveal himself. The God who is unknowable, the God who is unseen, has made himself knowable in the person of his son he's not abstract but into the darkness our darkness because of our sin light and life has shone in the word of God who is Jesus Christ have you met him I've not said have you read your bible have you come to church I've not said have you given to a Christian charity have you done loads of good stuff I've said have you met Jesus Christ do you know him as a person The word became flesh. Chapter 1, verse 2. He, the word, was with God in the beginning. And God has made himself known. Have you met him? You could meet him today. Second thing, Christians, can I speak just to you? Can I speak to you? The Bible is saying this question, have you seen his glory? There's a verse from 1 Peter that I'd like to read to you. It's on the screen. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The foretaste of the future is real and attainable now. So let me ask you, is is there anything in your heart and mind that is snuffing out, that is uh, diminishing that real experience that you can know in this very day you'll never see him with your naked eye until he returns but right now you can rejoice in that future reality that you have a foretaste the first fruits of right now in your heart do you know him when you pray is it because it's something you must do 
Or is it because it's something you long to do? When you open up your Bible, has it got dust on it? Because you've not done it, because you've not prioritized it. Or is it something you long to do because you want to commune with your Father? And you want to know Jesus better. Opening your Bible is just having FaceTime, just having FaceTime with the maker of the universe. Has his passion become real to you? Do you feel his comfort? Do you know his care? Have you experienced his support in your life? The Spirit of God comes into your heart and makes these huge ideas about the person and nature and character of God. It makes your heart bigger as it's filled with glory and joy and it satisfies with lots of good things. Do you see the cross of Jesus and you're not familiar with it? Not a case of, oh, we've got to look at that again. But it's just unimaginable how the most high would come, the most low, and then be hung upon a cross, cursed for you. And that fills your heart with wonder and joy. Does it build you up? Does it electrify you? Does it thrill you? Or is it not again? Look at everything Jesus has done. Look at everything he's done to come near to you and for you. Look how far he's come. Look how much he's given up for his glory and for your rescue. What is keeping you from having that reality that 1 Peter 1 verse 8 speaks of? Is there something in your life that you need to deal with? Are you too busy? You always do what you want to do. Cranmer was right. What the heart wants mind justifies don't make excuses anymore come to Jesus who comes and stands with arms wide open even nailed to a cross what's holding you back obedience is hard disobedience is not an option come back to Jesus you can do it even this morning lastly thirdly you need to repent of your cynicism Christian friends I thought about saying this, so I will. (laughs) The Christian life is difficult. The world in which we live is hard and sin-stained. It's broken. It's decaying. 2022, for so many of us, has been a greatly challenging year. And you can feel kind of cynical. I'm going to give in. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Things will never get better. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. Let me tell you about a play called The Man of La Mancha. I don't know if anyone's seen it or heard of it. It tells the story of a man who has gone mad. He's he's an old man, a noble knight called Don Quixote, and he goes mad. He goes to an inn where he meets a prostitute called Aldonza. He goes to this lady called Aldonza and says, my lady, and, and kind of bows before her. He treats her with all that she's done in her life like royalty. And he gives her a new name, and she hates it. That's the beginning of the play. He says, no, you're wonderful. You're a lovely princess. You don't know what I've done. No, I do know what you've done, and and, and you're just wonderful. You're beautiful. She says to him, Aldonza speaking, I hate this. Don't you know what's happened in my life? My mother left me in a ditch. I was naked, cold. I was too hungry even to live. She wanted me to die right there in that ditch. My father was in the army. He was in a regiment. I don't even know which one he was in. I am nothing. That's who I am. Let me go. Stop being so kind to me. I am nothing. That's who I am. Fast forward to the end of the play. Their relationship has changed her. 
Don Quixote just keeps doting on her. He keeps rewarding her. He keeps reminding her of how much he loves her. At one point, she realizes what he's doing and says this. You sang songs to me. You spoke of a great quest. You spoke of bearing unbearable sorrow, marching into hell for a heavenly cause. And it's changed me. She takes on the new name that he gave her and she realizes that she's been transformed because of his actions. And the whole point of the play is the actions of this man and how it can transform Aldonza with all of her past and all of her regret. But he's mad. He's opted for madness to rescue her. He gets up and he says, who's to say what madness is? Maddest of all I'll be to see life as it is and not as it ought to be. There is a concrete slab between life as it is and life as it ought to be, between the real and the ideal. Don Quixote says, if you're going to be an idealist, you have to be mad. And that's what I'm going to do. Because of John chapter 1, Christians do not have to be mad. Reality has broken through the concrete slab that exists above our world and the real, the ideal, has made himself known. We don't need to be cynics anymore and neither do we need to be mad. Instead, we need to remind ourselves of this from John chapter 1 verse 14 and following. The incarnation says there is hope for the present and there is joy and glory for the future because of the actions of Jesus Christ. He's punched a hole in the roof of the world and the ideal has become real. And that brings purpose and joy. Don't sit back on your haunches and think that uh, the world will never change. It will, but only through God's initiative. Remember Aldonza. She was given a new name. Christian friends, so have you been. You're a child of the king because of the actions of Jesus. You feel guilty this morning? You're struggling with shame? Aldonza is your name. No, child of God, daughter of God is your name. The real, the ideal, has transformed everything. But it's not a myth or a legend. It's history. And it's not Don Quixote, but it is Jesus Christ.